This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast for the seven days starting March 22nd. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, U.S. Army Captain Brett Moore talks about combat stress in Iraq. We'll also hear from Shannon Babb, the big winner in this year's Intel Science Talent Search. And astronomer Steve Pompey tells us about a science project that even little kids at home can help out with. Plus, we'll test your knowledge of some recent science in the news. First up, Captain Brett Moore. Captain Moore is a clinical psychologist with the 85th Combat Stress Control Unit based in Fort Hood, Texas. He's currently deployed in Iraq, where U.S. combat operations have now passed the three-year mark. Along with fellow psychologist and Army Captain Greg Rieger, Moore wrote the article, Combating Stress in Iraq, which appeared in the February-slash-March issue of the publication Scientific American Mind. Captain Moore called me from Kirkuk in northeastern Iraq. Captain Moore, I really appreciate your calling in. Oh, not a problem. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Can you tell me, first of all, it's been, over the years, it's, it's been called shell shock, then battle fatigue, and now apparently combat stress. Can you define combat stress? Yeah, combat stress is basically uh, a reaction to some type of event within a combat environment, which which makes the individual adjust to the situation. The the correct term actually is probably combat operational stress, and the operational identifier is added because even soldiers who may not go on a lot of combat missions are still prone to stress in the operational environment, maybe home front issues or the grueling work days, the environment. So uh, combat operational stress is probably the best uh, term for it, and it's basically anything within the environment that, that causes a person to adjust, um, and it can cause problems with uh, physiology, with your emotions, your mood, things of that nature. How is Iraq different from previous experiences for American forces? Uh, as far as mental health, do you mean? Yes, in ter- absolutely, in terms of combat operational stress. Sure. What I talked about in the article, uh, Greg and I talked about in the article, the operations here, soldiers are required to take, and I, soldiers, I include Marines as well, are required to take somewhat of a defensive and reactive posture uh, to combat operations. Uh, much of their time is spent con- going through villages, patrolling for, um, patrolling in different villages, searching for weapon caches, um, and you never know when or if you might become part of an attack. Uh, ambush could happen at any time. And it, it creates what we call anticipatory anxiety, not knowing when or if something's going to happen. And that, that can cause a lot of stress and anxiety for soldiers out here. So what kind of techniques are you using? What kind of specific techniques are you using with the people who are actually involved on a daily basis with this kind of stress? Well, there's, there's a couple of levels. Something that, uh, that I've used or that I kind of operate or my framework is based out of is there's a, an acronym called PIES, and it's related to combat and operational stress. And the, the P stands for proximity, which means you treat as close to the front and what we call the front lines or on the battlefield as, as possible. Uh, that's the first part. Immediacy 
is where we intervene as quickly as possible. Expectancy is where we install a sense of recovery and return to duty. We don't classify and diagnose. We let the soldier know that what you're experiencing is normal. And then we have the S in PIES, which is uh, simplicity, and we, we stick to the basics, food, rest, recovery, recuperation, and some of evidence-based treatment approaches like, uh, and I talk in the article about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is something that we use quite often out here. The Oregonian newspaper on Sunday, March 19th, did a major story there about post-traumatic stress among returning Iraq veterans. And uh, we're not talking about post-traumatic stress, but is there a relationship between combat operational stress now and post-traumatic stress disorder down the line? Well, there can be. With post-traumatic stress, there has to be some traumatic event. And I think one of the misperceptions or misconceptions out here or back home in the media is that just someone who's in a combat environment is going to develop or is exposed to a traumatic event, which is actually not is not true. You know, humans, and we're very resilient, we're able to deal with a lot of different stresses, and, and most soldiers returning home are going to be fine, but there is, there is, soldiers obviously are at increased risk out here, because they are, there is that possibility of, of numerous traumatic events and, and, and multiple combat stressors, but it, it, I think it's important for people to realize that post-traumatic stress disorder is actually a uh, not a huge part of, of what soldiers deal with when they go home. Uh, depression, anxiety are also just as common. Just as common? Is, is there anything else that they deal with more that maybe people don't know about? Well, relationship problems are a huge thing. You know, we, I, I would say most of uh, the problems I've encountered out here have been related to uh, relationship problems back home, maybe with a spouse or a, a family member. Uh, and personally, I, I wish people would that as opposed to PTSD, because that, that is really a um, significant stressor for soldiers out here. Very interesting. Can you tell me, this is, I'm sure this is outside of your area, but it occurs to me that if, if we're talking about combat operational stress as just being in the theater, there are, there are a lot of Iraqi civilians who must be under enormous stress. Any idea what's going on with their mental health? Um, I, that's actually something I, I can't speak much to. I, I, I saw something uh, in an article the other day about uh, having a greater need for psychologists, actually Iraqi psychologists. Uh, but you know, personally, I don't know what what that's like, what the levels are like, what the main issues are. I mean, I would assume. I think common sense would tell you that uh, it it's, it's a stressful environment, not just for American troops, but for the Iraqi people as well. So. But, yeah, I, I certainly couldn't speak intelligently about that. Can you talk a little bit about, in the article in Scientific American Mind in the February-March issue that you and, and your colleague wrote, you talk about one incident in a sidebar. You talk about an incident where where you were in an armed confrontation. And can you talk about whether that experience gave you any kind of an insight that you've been able to bring to your treatment of uh, combat soldiers and Marines? Sure. What, what it did is it, it certainly gave me a deeper appreciation for what uh, what these soldiers and Marines go through. Uh, one of the reasons I, the first part of my tour out here, I, I made an effort to go out on convoys and, and try to go on as many patrols that my command would let me do. And uh, what it did is it, it really gave me a sense of, of what these soldiers go through. Uh, you know, some within a year's time frame may go out outside the wire. When I say outside the wire, I mean go, going on combat missions, even the, the base. It's 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 amazing how how uh, how they cope with 
this stuff. And and my little glimpse of, of, of what they go through, I think it helped me connect with a lot of soldiers after that as far as helping them get through uh, some of their combat stress, some of their traumatic experiences. How much longer are you going to be there? Oh, I'm, I'm on the last last phase. I'm, I'm going home pretty soon. I can't give exact dates, but it's, it's pretty close. Well, safe travels, and I thank you very much for talking to us today. You're welcome. Captain Moore's article, Combating Stress in Iraq, appeared in the February-slash-March issue of Scientific American Mind. That's a new bi-monthly publication from the editors of Scientific American Magazine, concentrating on psychology, neuroscience, and related fields. It's available at newsstands by subscription or at www.siammind.com. That's S-C-I-A-M-M-I-N-D.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, and in honor of the recently celebrated St. Patrick's Day, all four stories are about beer, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. Researchers in Austria and the Czech Republic report that beer is an anti-inflammatory and can slow the aging process. Story 2. In most places, so-called 3.2 beer is 3.2% alcohol, but in Utah, 3.2 beer is actually 4% alcohol. Story 3. Microbiologists at the University of Heidelberg genetically modified the beer-making yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae so that it produces a beer that looks and tastes almost exactly like cola, but with about a 10% alcohol content. And story four, Norway resident Haldis Gunderson was recently amazed to find that when she turned on her kitchen faucet, beer flowed forth. We'll be back with the answer, but first, on March 14th, the Intel Corporation announced the winners of their big high school science talent search, and the grand prize went to Shannon Babb of Highland, Utah. The 18-year-old studied the water quality in the Spanish Fork River and developed plans to make the river healthier. I called her at her home in Highland. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for talking to us today. Hi. My pleasure. So you're you're the big winner. Tell us what you did. What did you do to win the intel? I did a six-month longitudinal study of the Spanish Fork River system and then figured out ways to fix the problems I found. Well, what kind of problems did you find, first of all? Well, there are several human pollution problems I found. There was E. coli in one of the sites. There was nitrogen and phosphorus contamination, turbidity, which is how much dirt's in the water, uh, low dissolved oxygen, so the fish couldn't breathe. And I also found that there was not as many species after humans had come in contact with the river. Uh, what did you use to measure the, the levels of E. coli? E. coli did a swab test. So you take the sample of water, and then you swab um, chocolate augers, and you put them in the incubator, and if it comes out with the metallic sheen, then you know that you have E. coli. And I understand, though, that you've been researching water quality for quite a bit longer than the past six months. Yes. How did you I've, get interested in that, and for how long have you been looking at that? I've always been interested in science and nature, and when I was younger, uh, water quality was all over the news because we were in a drought, there wasn't much water, we had to protect what we had, and yet they kept on saying it's polluted. But I couldn't find any data that said, yes, it is polluted, or no, it really isn't. So I created a study to test that. Five years later, here I am, and my studies are getting 
national recognition. So the study that you won the intel with is actually the same study that you started when you were 13? Yes, it's the third phase of a much larger project called the Ins and Outs of Utah Lake. What remediation plan did you come up with? Can you summarize that? I split it into three major sections. We had the education of the community, telling people that what they put on our lawn does end up flowing directly into the river. There is the phase where I talked with local politicians and the State Water Quality Board explaining the problems and trying to get funding to repair things like the stream structure, um, improve the structure of road drainage systems. And the last phase is trying to rebuild the repairing zone because that helps prevent pollutants from entering the river. You took home a $100,000 scholarship. So what, what was your reaction when you, when you learned that you had actually won? Um, my first reaction was, what? I, I was amazed. I had no clue that I even had a chance. I thought maybe if I was lucky, I could get a tenth, but not first. And what was the reaction of your, your friends and family? Well, my friends never had a doubt. My family was also kind of surprised because they had, they knew about this competition, how prestigious and how hard it is to win it. I think six people who have won this have gone on to win Nobel Prizes, in fact. Yeah, it's very prestigious. And your school, they must be just going crazy. I'm a hot topic. I made it onto announcements, which doesn't usually happen for an academic. You made it onto, oh, your school announcements, I see. And that doesn't happen for an academic, what, it usually happens for the sports people? It usually happens for sports or drama club or but not for pure academics. Yeah, well, this is really a big deal. And do you know what school, what college you're going to in the fall? Utah State. And they must be beside themselves as well. Have you heard from them? They're already emailing me all excited and wondering if there's any way that I can, they can help me out with the transition up to Utah State. And it's exciting. That's great. And do you know what you want to do ultimately? I want to continue studying water quality. So you're actually very serious about making that your career. I have explored other genres of science, and hydrology is great because it allows you to study chemistry, physics, geology, biology, entomology, all at the same time. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Shannon. I really appreciate you coming on. You're welcome. Second prize in the Intel Science Talent Search went to 17-year-old Yi Soon of San Jose, California. He won a $75,000 scholarship for studying the mathematics of random motion. The third prize winner was Chelsea Zhang from Silver Spring, Maryland. She showed that byproducts of low-density lipoproteins contribute to blocked arteries. And she got a $50,000 scholarship. Another $305,000 went to the 37 other finalists, and all finalists got a laptop computer. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Here are the four stories. Story one, Austrian and Czech researchers say beer decreases inflammation and slows aging. Story two, in Shannon Babs, Utah, 3.2 beer is really 4% alcohol. Story three, German microbiologists genetically modified yeast to make beer that tastes like cola with a kick. And story four, a woman in Norway had hot and cold running beer faucets. 
Story one is true. In a study published in the March issue of International Immunopharmacology, Austrian and Czech researchers say that beer hops decrease levels of chemical compounds associated with inflammation. A grain of salt in the beer, though. Fortune magazine points out that the study was paid for by a group of breweries, and that an earlier Czech study reported that two beers a day fought impotence. Because after two beers, story two is true. Salt Lake City's KUTV reports that Utah measures beer's alcohol content by weight, while most places measure alcohol content by volume. When Utah beers alcohol is measured the way everyone else measures, their 3.2 percent beer is actually 4 percent alcohol. Most beer, by the way, is about 5 percent alcohol by volume. And story four is true. Norway's Haldis Gundersen did have beer coming from her kitchen faucet, while the big tower bar downstairs from Ms. Gundersen had water coming from their beer taps. The Associated Press reports that some appallingly poor plumber had connected the bar's beer hoses to the house's water pipes and the incoming water pipes to the bar taps. A St. Patrick's Day miracle explained. The pipes, the pipes are calling. Which means that the story about the genetically engineered yeast that produces high alcohol content cola-flavored beer is totally bogus. For now. Next up, Stephen Pompey. He's an astronomer and the manager of science education at the National Optical Astronomy Observatory in Tucson. The observatory is part of a program called Globe and a collaboration called Globe at Night. That's a worldwide science project that takes place all this week, from March 22nd to March 29th. Anybody, even little kids, can take part by doing just a minute of stargazing and noting down what they see. To find out more about Globe at Night, I called Dr. Pompey at his office in Tucson. Dr. Pompey, thanks for talking to us today. My pleasure to be here. Tell us about Globe and about Globe at Night. Well, the Globe Project is a worldwide、um, education project to have students around the world gather scientific data. And the Globe at Night project is our attempt to gather information about the brightness of the night sky around the world. What age group of students are we looking at here? Well, this project is appropriate for for any age that can go outside. They just have to be able to、uh, find the constellation of Orion and、uh, be able to observe how bright the constellation looks from their location. So this is a great thing for little kids to do with their parents or for a school group to do. Yes, it would work for any age. The only thing is, it'd be best to be done、uh, with some supervision. So we're actually going to look at Orion. How are little kids going to judge the intensity of the stars that they're looking at? Well, we provide、um, uh, through the web. We provide a map of Orion as it would look from different locations. So from a very dark sky location, they'd see a lot of stars in Orion. From from a big city, they would just see a few stars. So they're really asked to compare what they see with one of these pictures that we've、uh, we've taken and give to them. So, is the intent of the Globe at Night project just to get kids involved? Or are you actually trying to generate real data here? We're trying to generate real data. We have a tremendous resource in these kids across the world, and they can give us an insight into how how the sky looks from their location, and also how much energy is being wasted、uh, from that location. We want to look at the 
the relative intensities that people can appreciate from around the world in different spots because light pollution is such a problem for astronomy now? Light pollution is a big problem for astronomy. Uh, it's uh, Even the stars are now an endangered species. If you want to go out and enjoy the wonders of the night sky, you really need an automobile with a full tank of gas. Uh, so we're hoping that uh, this will build awareness of the fact that um, the wonders of the night sky are really uh, not possible for many people in the world. Is it really necessary for us to be using as much light at night, in especially in big cities, as we are currently? No, not at all. Most of the light is um, is wasted. It's not directed where it needs to go. It's going up into the sky and uh, interfering with our view of the sky. We could save a tremendous amount of energy if we could shield our streetlights properly. If we were to look down at the Earth uh, from space or even from an airplane, when we see all the lights that are coming up at us, it's basically like a big uh, a big billboard that says we're, we like to waste energy. <laughs> uh, it sort of advertises our ability to throw away electricity, which is something we can't we can't do. Do you want to talk at all about what you think uh, the aesthetic value is of stargazing, especially for kids? I think kids. Um, really can benefit from a view of the night sky. Many of us who are older have seen the Milky Way and, and know the great beauty of the Milky Way, but most kids today have never been in a situation where they can see a dark night sky or see the Milky Way, and that's really a sad, sad situation. Dr. Pompey, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. The GLOBE program is managed by the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research and Colorado State University, with support from NASA, the National Science Foundation, and the State Department. To take part in the Globe at Night project, go to www.globe.gov slash globe at night. All one word, globe at night. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. That's podcast at sciam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.